Well, good morning, church. Good morning. So good to see you this morning. Um, if we haven't met, uh, my name is Paul Pretty, and um, I am... God used this church to change my eternity and create me into a new person. And that applause, which I greatly appreciate because of the long-standing relationship that we've all had together, is because Jesus is king. And because Jesus took me from a man going my own way, following my own passions, to a man bound by Christ. And so I thank you for how you have loved me, how you have loved my family, and how you have loved this church in Marion that God has used us to be a part of planting. So LifePoint Delaware, thank you. And thank the Lord for what he has done. I, I'm so grateful uh, to be here. Um, and again, everything I said, I mean, we, you know, we were here for, I think, five years, something like that. And the Lord changed my life, my wife's life, our eternities uh, through you, through this church. And, and today you continue to support what God is doing in Marion. I know Cale gave an update a couple of weeks ago about things in Marion. And, and we're in this tension where things are great and things are really hard. It's probably relatable, uh, right, in so many ways in our lives. We have these things that we're grateful for, things we, we praise God for, and yet in the midst of that praise, things are really difficult. We're seeing people have community for the first time that they've ever had community in Marion. We're seeing people who, who are, are, are plugging in and serving and connecting to a body of believers for the first time in, in decades, for the first time in years. And, and we're seeing, uh, we've had somebody be baptized, we have another baptism coming up, we're seeing life change. And we're so excited to see what God is going to continue to do. And, and yet, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're sort of waiting at the same time, right? We're waiting for this facility. But the church isn't a facility. The church is the people. And so in the midst of the waiting, God has allowed uh, just extraordinary things to happen. And so very grateful for that. And again, I want to say thank you for how you continue to support uh, what God is doing in Marion. Now, all of that being said, the point of this morning uh, is to worship and praise Jesus, right? And to see who Jesus is, to see Jesus as, as the uncommon king that he is, to see Jesus rightly, and in seeing Jesus rightly, worship Jesus rightly. Because when we worship Jesus rightly, we are satisfied, we are filled with joy. And what we're saying throughout this series, we're calling Uncommon Crown, right, is, is that Jesus is, is in a sense an uncommon king. He didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to establish a, a spiritual kingdom in our hearts. That's the big idea of this series. We're saying every week that Jesus came to establish his kingdom in our hearts. Jesus didn't come to, to be served. Jesus come, came to serve. Jesus didn't come to wear a crown of gold. He came to wear a crown of thorns. And he did all of that because he came to save us from the penalty of our sin and give us new life. And that's what we're looking at this uncommon king. And, and last week, we were, uh, we were in the book of Isaiah about 700 years before Jesus' birth. And this week, we're going we're gonna to jump back into this, this retelling of the story of Jesus' birth. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you, that's great. We'll also have the text uh, for you on the screen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1. And, and before we get into to chapter 1, I, I do want to just make a couple of mentions and a couple of notes. And so you, you, you probably know this, but I want to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, Matthew it was a, a disciple of Jesus. Matthew spent years walking with Jesus during his earthly ministry. 
Matthew was a tax collector before he really came to Jesus and had his eternity transformed and his life blown up. And so um, what we see is Matthew typically is thought of as a very detailed, organized guy. And so um, what we also know is Matthew, when he's writing this gospel account, this, this account of the good news of Jesus, he's writing it to a Jewish audience. Right, he's writing it to a group of people who have been faithfully following Judaism, and he's writing to them saying, look, I am a fellow Jew, you are Jews, this is what you need to know, this is what you need to see in order to see Jesus rightly as the king, as the Messiah, the chosen one, who came to save the people from their sins. And, and what's interesting is, is Matthew starts it in a really interesting way. What we're going to see is Matthew begins this with this really, really long genealogy. <laughs> he opens up. God has been silent for 400 years. The New Testament begins, and the first words we're going to see is this list of an incredibly long list of names. And yet there are things in them, in those names for us today. So I want to pray for us, and then we're going to get into this text today. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we trust you. We need you desperately as always, Lord. As we open your word, would you open it to us and help us see you? to know you, to love you, to cherish you, to praise you? Would you get me out of the way, Father, and would your glory shine above and beyond all? Help me teach and communicate your word clearly. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Now, uh, Matthew chapter 1 is typically uh, remembered by uh, theologians and historians and, and all these people as the forgotten chapter, all right? And it's a mystery as to why, but I think Uh, By the end of of the reading of these first 17 verses we're going to read through, there's a chance that you may understand why. So this is how God breaks into history for the first time in 400 years. We're going to read a lot of text, so just buckle in. Uh, It's going to be riveting. Uh, Verse 1 begins with this. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. And his brother, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now, I know what you're thinking, Paul, can we please just keep reading? Absolutely. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jackanoah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. We have six more verses. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconoah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zaduk, and Zaduk, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, and Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. 
and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, why do you think this is called the forgotten chapter? This is what we do when we open up Matthew chapter 1. We read, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And your translation may say, this is the genealogy of the Messiah. And we read one list of names and we say, okay, get it. Flip to chapter 2. Check, I understand what is happening. And then you're a day ahead in your reading plan. You know, and you're like, I am crushing this. But here's the thing. The scriptures promise us elsewhere in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So that's God's word, and God's word is true, God's word is, God's word is faithful, God's word is, is trustworthy. What this means is that within this list of 42 generations, that's what we just read, there are things that are profitable for teaching, profitable for correction profitable for righteousness. And I think the question then is what? Lord, what would you have us see from these verses? All right? And so to hopefully answer that, I want to I just slow down a little bit. Because I think sometimes the way that we see Jesus rightly is we, we slow down. In our life, in everything, we just slow down and say, Jesus, who are you? Help me see you in your words. So I want to begin with this. this again, this first half of verse 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And again, some of your translations say, may say, Jesus the Messiah. So I think one of the reasons we're often over, excuse me, underwhelmed when we open up the scriptures is because we're so overstimulated everywhere else in our lives. Like we live in a hyperbole-driven culture where in order to get our attention, things have to be exciting and awesome, right? The more exciting we can make things sound, the more likely we're to pay attention to them and spend our money and fuel this thing. So I, I did a little uh, research. I used to be a, a marketing guy, and um, I, I found a couple of pictures. So uh, Disneyland, Disneyland says where dreams come true, you know, like, man, that sounds good. And then you're a, a mom and a dad who spend, you know, Basically, in three days' time, you spend five years of savings and, and walk the equivalent of three marathons. But, you know, dreams come true at Disneyland, right? You buy into that, and we go, and it's a blast. I've never been, but I'm sure it's awesome. Uh, Coca-Cola says, says this, open happiness. Open happiness. Like, I want to be happy. Coca-Cola's going to make me happy. That's great. I want to open that up. Um, and Coca-Cola, this was, this was one of their most successful sort of campaigns. They changed their slogans all the time. And I think they made a real mistake uh, when they moved away from their campaign in 1939. It said, whoever you are, whatever you do, wherever you may be, when you think of refreshment, think of ice cold Coca-Cola. And you know that, I mean, I'm a person, I'm a place, I, excuse me, I'm not a place, I'm in a place where I, I sort of want Coke after that. Right, but again, that sort of, it, it makes us want these things. And then when, again, we open up this book that's supposed to be the greatest news in the world, the greatest news the world has ever heard, it's, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And when we zoom over that and we just flip to the next page and we go into this long list of names, what we miss is the incredible nature of the news that the original audience and the original readers would have seen. When, when Matthew opens with, this is the genealogy of, to a Jewish audience, remember he's writing to Jews, to a Jewish audience, this would have been, thank you. This is exactly what I need to hear. In, the, in this culture, in this time, everything was dependent on who you came from. 
Genealogy determined legitimacy. If you didn't have the right genealogical line, you were cut off from the people of Israel and therefore cut off from the promises of God. And so families would take detailed, minutia notes on who were their fathers, father, 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 because they needed to be a part of the covenant people of God. And so when they're opening this, they're saying, okay, yeah, he has to be who the scriptures promise he will be. And so I think we, we see that from the start. Now, the second thing we see is it says Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah. And when they were reading this, they would have looked at the meaning of those names more than the name of those names, if that makes sense. It's really a name and a title. You see, when we choose names for our kids in our culture, we choose the name that sounds really nice when you pair it first name, middle name, and last name. We typically don't care about the meaning of the name. I will say I'm an exception of that. I was named after the Apostle Paul, though I wish my parents would have thought through that a little bit because it makes my initials PP. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that joke, but I just did. No, uh, but seriously, look, so they, they would have looked at the initial, they would have, not the initials, they would have looked at the name, and from seeing the name, it would have rushed, the, this thing of meaning would have hit them like a bus. I mean, it would just hit them right, like, oh my goodness, this is what Matthew is saying. It says, Jesus, the name meaning of Jesus is Yahweh, or Jehovah saves, In Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when the angel appears to Joseph, he says, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then that title, Christ, or Messiah, it's the same word translated in different different languages. That word means anointed, or the anointed one. And so all of a sudden, while we just zoom by the first half of of verse 1, what the original audience would have understood was something like this. This is the evidence and the proof that Jesus is the anointed one who came to take away the sins of the world. And all of a sudden that shifts from genealogy of Jesus Christ to this is the greatest news you've ever heard. And this is the news that you need to lean into. We glaze over, but in reality, we need to lean in. Matthew was opening his account with an incredibly bold statement to say, I have the evidence that Jesus is who the scriptures promised he would be. And I have the evidence that says Jesus really is the son of God, the chosen one, the anointed one who came to take away the sins of the world. And now as we lean into that, suddenly I think the rest of the passage opens up to us. As we lean into the incredible news Matthew presents us, I think what we see is that in the rest of these 42 names, what Matthew is actually doing is he's giving us a picture of the gospel, and he's giving us more and more evidence that Jesus really is the Savior of the world. And the reason I I say that, I think we'll, we'll see it as we go, but we have to get to the second half of verse one. And I know I'm already only through half of one verse, sorry. Um, get to the second half of verse one, and Matthew ties Jesus to two names. He says, he says the, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so the original audience, they, they, they would have been looking for this. To, to be the savior of the world's sins, Jesus had to be from David, and he had to be from Abraham. And there's a couple 
reasons why. Notice he begins with David. Interestingly, David comes later in history than Abraham, but for the Jews, David was the king. He's the king everybody would have thought to and thought of that would have pointed toward the future king, the the Messiah. And the reason for that, David is thought of as the greatest king of Israel, though flawed as he was. The reason for that is God gave David a really really important promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 12. This is what God says to David. This is is about a thousand years before Jesus was born. Verse 12, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, again, God speaking to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, in part, this prophecy is pointing toward David's next son, Solomon, right, who would build the temple, who would be a great king, but in, in full This is a promise and a prophecy toward a king who would remain forever, and Jesus is that king. Again, Jesus didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to establish a kingdom in our hearts. And this is the messianic or the promise of the Messiah that the Jews would have clung to to say, we need a king on the throne of David. We need a king who's going to come and conquer. We need a king who's going to come and wipe out our enemies because, God, you promised we'd have a king who sat on David's throne forever. And so from this, what what Matthew is clearly doing is he's saying, look, here's the tie to David. He does have to come from David. And I'm going to give you this list of 14 generations that ties him directly to David so that you may have confidence that he is the son of David. And now from there, we have another list of 14 generations that go all the way back to Abraham. All right, now Abraham, we're probably familiar with. He's the, the father of the nation of Israel. God speaks to Abraham out in the wilderness, out of nowhere. Abraham's like 80 years old. He's super old. And God promises him, hey, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, which is insane because Abraham's wife had been a barren woman all her life, and she was also old beyond the age to bear children. And yet what God does is he makes good on his promises. But God promises this to Abraham in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. And he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whom who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that little, that little line there at the end, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed through you, Abraham. Once again, that's pointing toward the future Messiah who would come to the world and take away the sins of the world, right? That's what Messiah means. And so, clearly, there's this tie back to both of these things. And again, from base level, Matthew is establishing Jesus' legitimacy. And yet, in establishing his legitimacy, he's also emphasizing his glory. And the way he does that is by tying together, essentially, these two prophecies. 
As the original audience was reading this, they would have known the prophecy of David. They would have known the prophecy of Abraham. They would have known the hundreds of other prophecies throughout the scriptures, and they would have known that the Messiah would be the fulfillment of those prophecies, right? So I think that's point one of seeing Jesus clearly and not just breezing over this genealogy, but there's, there's something more here, right? There's something more. I want to take us back to verse 17, I'm sure you had it memorized from the first time through, so this will be review. It says, verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, I'm not great at math, I'll be, I'll be honest with you. And so he, he's going through these, these different 14 generations, and what's really interesting is when, you, is when you go back, and if you were to look at the books of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, what you would see is that, that Matthew actually skips some generations here. Matthew actually chooses to leave out certain names, and that's a very intentional thing that Matthew does. And when you look at the, the original sort of Greek or the original language of the son of, the, the meaning here is really the ancestor of. While Matthew certainly ties one father to, to the next son, he, he also skips some generations and the reason he does that is because what he wants to do is he wants to create these nice, tidy sections of 14 generations. 14 from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, 14 from the exile in Babylon to the coming of the Messiah. Now, the reason he wants to do that is because 14 times 3 is 42. Makes sense, right? Not at all. But what if you do 14, excuse me, what if you do 7 times 6? That also equals 42, right? Yeah, check my math there. Seven times six equals 42. Now, here's why I say this. The number seven in Israel is a really, really important number. The number seven was representative of the Sabbath rest. God commanded that Israel would rest on the seventh day in honoring him. What you also see is that in the Old Testament, Every seven years, there would be a year, essentially, of rest where debts would be forgiven. There was a period where land wouldn't be plowed, things like that. There was a year of rest. Now, what's also really fascinating is every seventh, seventh year, so every 49th year, what would happen is this thing called the, the year of Jubilee. We actually sang about it. The year of Jubilee was this insane thing. Crazy. Actually, historians and theologians believe that Israel often didn't actually observe the year of Jubilee because it was too costly. The year of Jubilee, if you had sold yourself into slavery to pay for your, for your debts, you would be freed. In the year of Jubilee, land would be returned to original owners. In the year of Jubilee, any wrong that had been done would essentially be, be, be forgiven and undone. Every seventh seven, everything was made new. And it was this reboot and this restart for the nation of Israel. Incredible. And you think, well, that's not fair. No, it's not fair. But God doesn't work on fair. God works on God. And in this, everything would be made new. And so what, what Matthew is doing, church, remember the 14 times 3 or the 7 times 6, both equal 42. What he's saying is Jesus is the seventh seven. Just me? Jesus is the seventh seven. And in his structure and the way he puts this together, what he's saying is Jesus is the ultimate jubilee. He's the ultimate 
Jubilee. And then when you go back into the names, this becomes even more real. If you were to take time and you were to go through every single one of the names listed, as I'm sure you were planning on doing, you probably looked at your spouse and said, honey, when we get home, we're going to spend seven hours and we're going to go through this. When you look at the names, it's broken after broken after broken after messed up after messed up after messed up. Abraham. Father Abraham. Apparently there's a church song about that. I didn't grow up in the church, so I don't know it. But Father Abraham, right? Abraham was a man of faith. He's commended for his, his faith. He's commended in the book of Hebrews. He's a man of faith. And yet, multiple times, Abraham lies, gives his wife to a foreign king because he's scared the king is going to see his wife as beautiful and kill Abraham. He's like, oh, it's my sister. You can have her. Go ahead. What's wrong with you? Right? He's broken. He's messed up. Go to David. David is the, the king of Israel. He's the best king. Big air quotes. We know the story. David's hanging out in the palace. He's supposed to be at war. Men, when we're not doing the things we're supposed to be doing, our minds drift. Work diligently. Do what you're supposed to do. David is on the castle. He's looking out. He sees a woman bathing. Her name's Bathsheba. And he's like, I would like that. And so he brings her to him. He has sex with her. He impregnates her. Finds that he has impregnated, impregnated her. Sends for her husband, a dude named Uriah, who was a good friend of David's and was out on the battle lines fighting while David was taking advantage of his wife. Says, Uriah, why don't you go have sex with your wife? And Uriah's like, I would never because those men are out on the battlefield. I'm going to sleep on the floor. I'm going to touch my wife. And David's like, well, crap. And so then what David, sorry, I don't mean to make so many jokes. I really don't. It just comes out. So what David does is he, he stages this thing to, to basically make Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, exposed to the enemy and killed. David sets him up. That's murder. Broken. Absolutely broken. You go to the next list of genealogies, say you go into Ahaz. We read about Ahaz last week in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9. Ahaz sacrificed his own children. Ahaz set up altars to foreign gods. Just horrific. There's another one in there, I forget his name, Manasseh. Manasseh is known as the most evil king of all of Israel. He's in the family line. And so you get 42 generations of messed up, 42 generations of broken. And then what Jesus, what Matthew says about Jesus is he's the seventh seven. That means is all of that broken, all of that twisted, all of that messed up, all of that hurt, all of that pain, all of that crying, all of that death. The year of Jubilee, the king of Jubilee, is here to somehow, some way, work all of that brokenness for the glory of Christ. Jesus came to redeem the brokenness. He came, to, he, doesn't, he doesn't do away with the pain. He says, I see the pain. And the pain is so great and the hurt is so great and the brokenness is so great, I'm willing, I'm willing to sac sacrifice myself for the pain. And what's even greater is elsewhere scripture says, that Jesus was a man like us, and yet he was God, and yet as a man, he was tempted as we are tempted. And as we are tempted, as, as he was tempted as we are tempted, Jesus remained without sin. And so Jesus could take all of that sin and baggage of his family, and could say, I'm going to take it. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to go to the cross, and I'm going to 
pay for it and pay for yours and pay for mine because I am the perfect, sinless lamb of God. He is the ultimate jubilee. It's just incredible. Now, it's a lot of information and it's like, okay, well, how does this change my day today or maybe impact my day tomorrow? You know, like what do I, what do I actually do with this? Well, I would encourage you to go back and to read this genealogy today and see Jesus for who he is. He's glorious. He's mighty. There's also a few points I think we need to see as well. Number one is this. History doesn't direct God. God directs history. And the reason this is so important is because when you, when you look at this, this genealogy, what you see is that God promised the Messiah 2,000 years before Jesus' birth to Abraham, 1,000 years before Jesus' birth to David, You go back even further in Genesis chapter 3, when sin first enters the world, there is a promise that one will will step on the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. That's a promise to the Messiah. What that means is all the way from the beginning, thousands of years ago, God had a plan to send Jesus. And because God had a plan to send Jesus, what that means is that all of the messed up of history, all of the broken of history couldn't couldn't thwart God's plan, couldn't derail God's plan, couldn't destroy God's plan. And what that means is that God is actually ultimately in control and sovereign over history. And the way that that should change our days today and tomorrow is to see and to realize that the future promises of Christ are good today, even when it feels like today is falling apart. The future promises of Christ is that one day he will return, he will wipe away every tear, death will be no more, And yet in the midst of our seasons right now, sometimes we feel like things are going badly. There's war, there's inflation, there's cancer, there's you name it. There's awful things going on in the world and yet because God is ultimately in control of history, we can rest confident and secure knowing that if if he delivered Jesus when he said he would deliver, He'll deliver Jesus in the future. Do you see that? He's in control. He's in control of all history. And the brokenness of history can't mess up his promises. Number two, don't allow the shame of messy to prevent you from coming to Jesus. I think a lot of times in our culture, what what we actually struggle with is, is realizing we're sinners in need of a savior, frankly. A lot of times we, we, we don't think we we're really all that bad. I'm fine. No, you're not. You're a sinner in need of a savior. So am I. I don't care how good of a person you are. We're all broken. And yet on the flip side of that, I think some of us, we get so distracted with how broken we are or how broken our family is that we, we miss coming to Jesus because we feel shame. I mean, I already went through Jesus' family history, and I only named three people. There's a whole lot more broken and a whole lot more messy in this genealogy. And so rather than hiding in shame, rather than sort of tucking ourselves away in shame, rather than than not allowing anybody to see where we're flawed or anybody to see where we're broken or, or tucking these things in our family history away that we're embarrassed about, that we feel shame about, what we need to do is to work things out in the context of biblical Christian community so that we can be pointed to Jesus so that Jesus can say, I know already, I see already, and I've forgiven you through repentance and faith in me. 
We cannot allow our brokenness, we cannot allow our messiness to prevent us from joining in a relationship with the king of the universe. He already knows how broken you are. He already knows what's been done to you, and he already knows what you have done to others. And what he wants to do is say, you are mine. You are now a new creation in Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. What he wants to do is he wants to say, these are the good works that I've set out for you to do. Now walk in them. What he wants to do is say, this good work that I began in you, I will bring it to completion. You have faith in me, you endure, I will bring it to completion. One day you will be with me. One day it will all make sense. I think we just need to trust, like Jesus knows. He knows your darkest secret. And that should be freedom. He's not afraid of it, he's not ashamed of it. Because in this genealogy, Matthew, he, had, he could have chosen some other people here and there but he intentionally highlights people who are train wrecks, people who are desperate for a need for a savior. And that should show us we should be desperate for our need for a savior. The second, the third point is I think closely tied to this. It's very, very similar. And that's this, that faith is required, perfection is not. Faith is required, perfection is not. Again, I'll, I'll point you back to Abraham and to David who are two really the cornerstones of gene Jesus' genealogy. These cornerstones messed up time and time and time and time again. And yet, what the scriptures tell us is that they had faith. And what their faith did is it covered their sins with righteousness. When God showed up to Abraham in the wilderness and Abraham's an old man and God says, of you I'm gonna make a great nation, Abraham could have said, you're nuts. And we all probably would have. But the scriptures say that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. That means is that God declared Abraham righteous because of his faith. And yet Abraham goes on to sin. Abraham goes on to fall. So how do we manage this tension? Well, I think when we, we sort of settle with ourselves that we are going to fall, though we shouldn't, and we settle with ourselves we're going to sin, though we should not, there's a freedom to repent. And there's a freedom to come to Christ. And when we as the church buy into the idea that we can be authentic within healthy boundaries with one another and to the right people, we'll experience the grace of Christ and we'll experience the newness of Christ. We'll experience Christ as our ultimate jubilee. You know, 1 John says that, I write this to you little children so that you will not sin, but when you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. What a promise that is, right? That when we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus our Lord, who stands in our place and says, my blood on their account, my blood for their sin. Faith is a requirement. Perfection is not. Rid yourselves of the attempt for perfectionism. You will experience grace and you will actually pursue more fully Christ-likeness and Christ's righteousness. For those of you here this morning who are like, I don't know what he's talking about, but it sounds great. I just want to encourage you that that's it. Faith. Believe that this Jesus, who Matthew says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, 
And then he gives all of this evidence and all of this proof that Jesus really is the Messiah, the one who came to take away the sins of the world. When I say place your faith in Jesus, what I'm saying is believe that Jesus is righteous for you and believe that Jesus, through his death on the cross, took away your penalty for your sin. Because your sin does deserve a penalty. It does. And Jesus took that penalty for you. Praise God. And all it requires is faith in him. For those of us who've been following Jesus for a long time, I pray this morning is an encouragement to see that history doesn't direct and determine God's plans. That God is going to make good on his promises. All of the promises that are not yet, Cale talked about that last week. We cling to the already promises today, but all of the not yet promises, we can, we can cling to those because God has been faithful today. So what are the not yet promises you're clinging to as you experience the wonderful already promises that Jesus has given you today? Church, let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We need you. We desire you. Father, I ask this morning that anyone here this morning who, who doesn't yet know and love you would, would be drawn to you. They would see that you are the center of history. That all of history has been pointing to you and, and that through Christmas, this time we call Christmas, we celebrate the birth of our Lord. For anybody who doesn't know you would just see Jesus, you for who you are. They would see that you don't shame them for their past. You don't shame them for their present, but you invite them into a new life through the forgiveness of their sins. And so, Father, would you lead anybody here this morning who needs to be led to you, to yourself, through the mighty blood of Christ? And, Father, would you allow us to be the church who is not bound by shame, who is not bound by the pursuit of perfectionism, but is a church walking daily in the grace of Christ as we trust in the Holy Spirit of God to make us more and more like his son, the uncommon king who came to walk among us, who came to die for us, who came to live again for us so that we might have eternal life, new life, life unending through him. Father, we love you. We need you. Glorify yourself in our midst this morning. We praise you. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.